Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Micah. This is like the one advantage of doing an online sermon. You can hit the pause button, you can look in the table of contents, and you can actually find the minor prophet Micah. So do that right now. I'm not going to read from it because we're going to read large chunks of it while I'm preaching through it, but I'm going to instead pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this book together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give this study to you. Lord, I pray you would um, keep us from distraction. You would fill us with your spirit. You would make our hearts hungry to hear your word, to apply it to our lives, to live with the power that you give us, and to go and do what we see here. Would you do that in us and in our church body, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we were approaching this weekend and thinking about preaching and thinking about preaching online to our church congregation, I thought for a moment about pausing from our Old Testament series. We've been marching through the redemption story in the Old Testament and thinking, what if we just took these next few weeks to do a special study, you know, a biblical study on pestilence in the Bible. Um, But then it occurred to me that so much of what we've been looking at in the Old Testament. So many of these scenes happen against the backdrop of crisis. Case in point, the book of Micah, the prophet we're about to read, he's ministering to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the two tribes in the south. And during his ministry, the northern tribe of Israel, those ten tribes that split off to the north, they are going to be conquered by a wicked global power of Assyria. In 722 BC, Assyria comes in and takes the northern kingdom away and then comes back 20 years later and threatens to take the southern kingdom and almost does in 701 BC. And so everything we're even talking about today happens against the backdrop of really what is a global crisis, a wicked global superpower threatening the known worlds as it stood in that day. What might God want to tell us in the face of crisis? What would he say to us? What is first and foremost on Micah's mind and heart as he speaks to us in these days of terror? What would God want to say to us? Do you know what he wants to talk about? He wants to talk about the gospel. He wants to talk about the timeless, glorious, ever-surprising, never-changing good news of His grace to us in Christ Jesus. That's the thing that God wants to say to us through the prophet Micah in the background of a true and a worldwide crisis. He's going to do that in this book in four parts. He's going to talk about his judgment. Then God is going to talk about his Savior. Then he's going to talk about his forgiveness. And finally, about the new life that is to be had in this redemption that he brings. All four of those parts we'll see um, throughout this prophet. So really, this is the gospel according to the prophet Micah. Let's start with the first point, God's judgment. And you can turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 3. And we're just going to look at half a verse, Micah 3, 2a. And this is what it says. 
you who hate the good and love the evil. That's how he's describing people in Micah's day, that they hate what is good and they love what is bad or what is evil. You know, at a time when people are scared and things are uncertain and we're afraid, the Bible doesn't pull punches. It doesn't retreat to religious platitudes. It doesn't give us this crutch that we can carry on life as normal. Even in the face of uncertainty, we are confronted with the reality of our sin. We hate good. We love to do evil. We hate what God wants. We resist it and we want to do what we want instead. And because of that, God will justly judge us. We face his judgment for our sin. That's what we hear in a moment of crisis. But if we're able to absorb that bad and heavy news that we stand under God's wrath and his judgment for our sin, then we're actually ready to hear good gospel news that comes to us in the same prophet. We talked about God's judgment. Let's look secondly at God's Savior, who is described to us in Micah chapter 5. Look at Micah chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 2 and 4. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now I know that if everything were right with the world today, we would be in the midst of March Madness. Um, Really sorry to bring that up for college basketball fans. There is no March Madness. This is the time for March Madness. And so when that college basketball tournament is underway, we pull out our brackets and we sit down and we prophesy. Even Presbyterians try to prophesy in March when we write out on our brackets who we think is going to win the tournament. Now, if you know a lot about basketball, like you have watched the season, you know your teams... The chances of you filling out a perfect bracket this season is 1 in 120 billion. That's crazy. It is nigh impossible to fill out a perfect bracket, which is why Warren Buffett, the richest man in the world, has offered to anyone who fills out a perfect bracket, he will pay them $1 million a year for the rest of their lives for a perfect bracket. That's crazy because it's not going to happen. You know, in my benevolence, I'm going to jump in and say, I will do the same thing. I will pay a million dollars a year to the person who gets a perfect bracket, and I'm only offering that this year. But that means if every American, they filled out um, a knowledgeable bracket, like if all 300 plus million of us knew what we were talking about, and we filled out decent brackets, and we got two-thirds of the teams right year after year, we could expect a perfect bracket in America for March Madness in the next 400 years. That's how hard it is to predict something that's going to happen perfectly right. 
Now check this out. Speaking of unbelievable otherworldly predictions, Micah predicts God's means of worldwide salvation 700 years before it happens. He's living in this volatile time. He's living at a time when nations rise and fall, and it's not clear which nations are going to stand for long and which cities are still going to be here tomorrow. And he's able to say, I'm going to tell you the ethnic people through which God will send his Savior. It's going to come through the Jews. Now, we heard that even before Micah, all the way back in the book of Genesis when God promised that to Abraham, that it's through him that God will bring the blessing to the nations. And Micah says it's going to come through the Jews. But he says, I'm going to do you even better than that. I'll tell you the specific tribe. There's 12 tribes in the Jews, and I'm going to tell you that this Savior is going to come through the tribe of Judah. Now, we had already heard that too back in Genesis when we heard that the scepter will not depart from the house of Judah. We heard that again in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God promises David that he's going to have an eternal kingdom. So we knew both of those things already. But then Micah says, I'm going to do you even better. Not just the people group, not just the tribe. I'm going to actually tell you the podunk backwater town in which this Savior is going to be born. And it's not Jerusalem like you would have thought. It's actually the little town of Bethlehem. God's going to raise up the King of Kings from the city of Bethlehem. That prophecy is going to stand from the moment it leaves Micah's mouth and is written on these pages for 700 years until the time when wise men, they come from the east and they come to Jerusalem and they meet Herod and they say to him, where is the king of the Jews? We followed the star to this place. And Herod turns to the scribes and the Pharisees and says, what are they talking about? Who is the king of the Jews and where is he going to be born? And the scribes open up Micah chapter 5 And they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's crazy. You can't make this stuff up. Now, I know there was a man named Dan Brown who sold some novels that said that the Catholic Church uh, created this kind of conspiracy and they made up these predictions and made them look true. But lest you're tempted to think that Micah was written sometime later, like after Jesus was born, and then we said the whole thing about Bethlehem, He's actually quoted by the prophet Jeremiah, which sticks Micah in this time period, the time period that the Bible says that he's writing in. We had these writings in our hands before Jesus is even born, which means that somewhere in every unbeliever's resistance to the Christian faith, you will have to come to terms with biblical prophecy. You're going to have to come to terms with a supernatural book that's making claims on things that won't happen sometimes for hundreds and sometimes of thousands of years later that actually come true according to the way that the Bible predicts it will come true. Depending on who's counting, you've got some 40 to 50 predictions about Jesus. Things that the Old Testament are saying will happen so many years later in the life of Jesus. 
that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That sometime during his childhood, he's going to flee to Egypt. That he's going to be raised in Nazareth. That he's going to be preceded by a divine messenger. That he'll ride on a donkey. That he'll be rejected by men. That he'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We know that amount of money. That he'll be ridiculed and spat upon, struck crucified, that he'll be fed vinegar on the cross, that not one of his bones are broken, that his side is pierced, that his clothes are divided, that he'll be resurrected, ascended, seated, and coming again. All of that was prophesied. You bring together men like David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah and Hosea and Zechariah and Malachi These are different prophets who live in different places, during different eras, sometimes speaking in different languages, and they are all saying the exact same thing. God's Messiah is coming. He's coming. God's solution for sin and for man's rebellion, He's coming and He's coming in the person of this suffering servant who is born in Bethlehem. For God so loved the world, from Bethlehem shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. And then He says in verse 5, He shall be their peace. For all of us who repent of our sins, we give up trying to impress God with our righteousness. And we confess that all of those things are unworthy before a holy God. And instead, we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. There is no sweeter news than to hear that we who have been under God's just wrath for sin now have been made righteous in Christ and we have been offered terms of peace in the gospel. When you hear that word peace, it makes me think of Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that, Christian? whether it's from Micah or Matthew or Romans, you've got one gospel, one message, one promise. We can have peace with God through Jesus, His Savior. That's the good news of the gospel. So we've heard in Micah about our judgment. We've heard in Micah about God's Savior. And now, number three, we get to hear about God's forgiveness to us. And this is one of my favorite portions of Micah. It's in Micah chapter 7 that we heard in our assurance of forgiveness. Look at Micah 7 verses 18 and 19. It says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning the iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnants of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Friends, what can I possibly say? This is sheer glory. This is sheer 
beauty. This is the kind of God we're talking about. I mean, since the beginning of September, we went digging in our Old Testaments to find him using slides and laser pointers and out pops this kind of God. He's beautiful and he's glorious and he is lavish with his forgiveness to us. I just want to point out one feature of what God is like from verse 18b. I don't know if you caught this, but it says, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but I think God is saying that he has a different relationship with his anger than he has with his love. God has anger, God has love, but he relates to those two things differently, and he gives us those clues here in this verse. He says he won't retain his anger because he delights in his love. So anger is something that God retains, but love is something that God delights in. Did you see that in our passage? Think about his anger. God will retain his anger towards those who reject him. He can and he will. It is in his justice to punish those who rebel against him, and he can do that to his glory. But Ezekiel 18.23 reminds us, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The answer is no. God will retain his anger for those who reject him, but he's not going to take pleasure in punishing the wicked. That's how God relates to his anger. That's what it looks like when God extends his anger to his creation. But his love is different. God wills to show anger, but he loves to love. That's what our passage says. Do you know that God delights to show his steadfast love to you? Do you know that that's what he loves to do? That's his preference. That's his desire is to show this love. I think most of us get into the habit of thinking that God is reluctant to show his love to us. We know the good news of the gospel. We've heard this before that if we put our faith in Jesus, then God has to forgive us our sins and secure our way to heaven. And so then we kind of imagine his hands being tied and he's got to love us because he said he was going to. But that's not what our passage says. It says that God loves to love. He loves to show his steadfast love. Do you know what the devil wants to do with Micah chapter 7? He wants to bury this passage in an Old Testament series or in a coronavirus scare. The devil wants you to forget that this passage is even in the Bible. He wants you to forget that God hands this to you as a blessing to receive this pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. Because Micah chapter 7, used rightly, is like a sword in the believer's hands when the devil is pressed so tight against us that we can smell his breath when he delivers his accusations. 
Micah chapter 7 is like a lamp in the darkness of doubt when we can't even see our hands in front of our faces. We know that God is sure because he lights our way with these verses. It's like a rock amidst the sinking sand of worry when it feels like everything else is falling or failing. Heaven and earth can pass away. It can pass by fire or by ice or by age or by pestilence, but the word of God stands forever. Not a jot or tittle of this thing will pass away. It will stand. Micah 7 is the promise for you in Christ. God's forgiveness is sweet. It's lavish. It is all-encompassing. It stands for you today. Christian, will you take this passage, this chapter, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it on your fridge, put it on your dashboard, put it on your computer monitor, and remember the goodness of God in Christ to remember your sins no more. That's what He loves to do. Now, not only does He give us His Savior and give us His forgiveness. God also gives us this new life in Christ. This was our confession. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is the most famous verse in Micah. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I know many of us are fearful in this day. Many of us are frantic. Some of us are just frustrated with this season and what we're being asked to do. But isn't this the simplest verse that just distills what God wants from us in the coming days? If you're a born-again believer in Christ, if you felt His forgiveness, this is what God is asking from you in these days, even in these days of a quarantine of how to live. You know what's going to become a really rare commodity this week? And I'm not talking about toilet paper. It's kindness. Kindness is going to be a rare commodity. And I don't just mean like friendliness. I don't just mean being nice. I mean gospel-born kindness. To look outside of myself to my family, to my friends, to my church, to my community, and see others with this kind of gospel born kindness. We just got done hearing that God is a God who loves to love. And it shouldn't surprise us that then he turns us around as a people, this born again community who actually loves to show kindness. We were made in God's image at creation. We're remade in his image when we become born again believers in Christ. And we can't help but be imitators of Him. And the same God who loves to show steadfast love, now He sets us up in believers spread throughout our communities who become a people that actually delight. By His power, by His Holy Spirit, we delight to, we love to show His kindness to other people. That would be surprising and supernatural in this season If we as believers seek ways to bless our family, to bless our church community, 
to bless our neighbors, to extend the kindness that God has given to us to one another so that we can live out this gospel before a watching world. May God find us doing so more and more. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for days of light and lamp and salt on the earth that this church body will go forth with this kind of gospel levity, that because you love to forgive us, we turn around and love to show kindness and justice in humility to one another, and that a watching world would see that and how rare that is in this crisis, and they will want to know who this true and living God is. We bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I now give you this beautiful benediction blessing. For you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. Amen.